Hello, this is Kat. This is Phoebe. We are Feminine Chaos. Well, thank you so much for joining us. And um, Phoebe, are you wearing a crown tonight for this podcast? I am. I am. Yeah, I figured I might as well. That's good. I, for one, will never be royal as Lord. I was so going to quote Lord at the beginning. Oh, my oh, goodness. I was going to ask whether we were ever going to be you and I royals. We, the royal mm-hmm. we, or will never be. Will we ever be royals? Royals. All right. <laughs> um, but we are we are gathered here today. Uh, it is it is March eighth in the evening, Monday, March eighth. It is International Women's Day, which we'll get to a bit later. And um, we're <laughs> discussing first and foremost the most important television event ever to happen in the history of the world. Oprah's interview with Meghan Markle mm-hmm. and Prince Harry, also known as the Sussexes, mm-hmm. um, which aired last night. And uh, I, I wrote about this for Unheard, which meant that I had to I had to stay up quite a bit later than my usual bedtime in order to file for, for British morning time. But also I had to find out who and what Meghan and Harry are. Um, I spent a week kind of familiarizing myself with their oeuvre. Can't say that I enjoyed this very much, but it did shed some light on why people are so obsessed with them. And Phoebe, you did not um, see more than like a like a snippet. No, so yeah, I wanted to as it was happening, and I tweeted to ask the internet how you're supposed to watch this in Canada if you don't have television, um, because. It's not that I don't watch television. I just watch it on the computer, like a a good millennial or whatever. Um, And people sent me ways of dubious (laughs) that you can apparently watch it. And then you give your computer a virus, but you get to see. Yeah, it seemed like you could do something like that. But I ended up falling asleep because nobody had commissioned me to write about it. So I thought I'm just going to go to sleep. I'm going to go to sleep. And you you made the right choice. It was nice. I got a lot of sleep. (laughs) Yeah, you made you made the right choice. Yeah. I mean, just to kind of sum up the vibe of this entire interview, my my poor benighted husband had to watch it with me because we only have one television, um, and so we're about twenty that's minutes. The, that's how it is for Harry and Meghan too. They have only the one television, right? And only the one five thousand square foot house, and only the one security team. Um, but yeah, so about twenty minutes in to this two hour extravaganza two hours it was two hours it was it was it was like five minutes of television packed into a two-hour can padded with foam peanuts in the form of commercial there was a break in the middle like you do if you give a french class that lasts for two hours you have to give a break no i mean it was like it was like all commercial breaks um but my husband turned to me like at the first commercial break and said this makes me wonder where the guillotine is at, which is like, <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> this is this is not um, a man who's ordinarily an eat the rich kind of person, but that's about how distasteful it was from a populist perspective. And um, so just, I, I assume that our, well, I mean, considering that our listeners are mostly male, maybe we um, need to kind of explain just the gist of this. But um, oh, I sum think it up. some of them know about the. the, the so in, yeah. in Britain, there's, there's a royal family there. And um, I guess the deal is whenever one of the royals marries somebody who is not their first cousin or whatever, there's a big media to do about how, oh, look at this 
ordinary person who is whatever. So this this happened with Princess Diana. This hap who is was oh my goodness I'm truly it's it's not actually past my bedtime but I'm very crucially Princess Diana. No to be clear, Diana is dead. Definitely, you know, God rest her soul. Definitely. Yes. So but her princess, ghost looms over the entirety of well, this. It does. It does. That's why I feel so ridiculous for having misspoken there. But basically, she was from a posh family, as I understand it. I am not up on the details enough to remember whether she was noble or I think so. I think she was noble, but like not quite as royal or whatever. She's landed gentry. I hate that I know this. Well, no, um, I'm glad you do because I've no idea. <laughs> so then, but that was supposed to be like that she was still, she could still be the people's princess for whatever other reasons. Um, then there's Kate Middleton, who was at the time, this feels like a thousand years ago, but I remember following all of this um, from a dorm room in Paris where I was living at the time, which was both glamorous and not in different ways. Um, but basically, she was a commoner, is a commoner. She's still very much alive. Um, and but she's not a commoner anymore. Now well, not a, a commoner anymore. Right, right, right. But her family is um, common, <laughs> whatever that means, which basically in the US sense would mean that she's like, I mean, in this context, she's like upper class rich person, but not a noble right not in the mm -hmm. gentry so this was all like ooh, look william just met some rando and it could have been anybody right um but then harry well harry has come a long way since his freaking nazi costume at a party that nobody seems to cancel everybody else gets canceled for having been like a tiny tiny bit offensive once maybe yeah, or yeah. one little swastika half a swastika <laughs> didn't even know that it was there <laughs> <laughs> and yet there's Harry, who literally was in a Nazi uniform at a party, but all is forgiven because St. Harry, of all the Harrys, what has he done? Well, he is one of the handful of good straight men, presumed straight, maybe he has other interests, I don't know, um, good straight men in this straight white cis men in this world. He's one of yeah. the few good ones. Or he's successfully rebranded as such mm -hmm. anyway. Mm -hmm. And why? Well, because he married Megan, Megan Markle. Right. So just to, um, I'm trying to think if I can sum up the timeline of this relatively easily. Um, Megan and Harry got married. There was a big to do. Um, at the time, there was a lot of discussion about like how racist was the royal family, how racist was the British press that they were going, like, how were they going to treat this biracial American divorced woman who was an, an older, an older, older woman coming ancient, into yes, pos positively ancient coming into marry their in prince. Her late thirties. How uh, is she even able to just dead. walk down the street? <laughs> it sounds terrible um, but you know but they had a beautiful wedding um it seemed at the time i don't know there's there's some debate about this so i don't really want to come down one way or another to say that the press definitely was or definitely wasn't more unfair to her than they were to anybody who's been in her position um or who had been in her position or would have been um but so they got married then after just a couple of years there was sort of rumors of of 
Trouble in Paradise, not that the marriage was unhappy, but that they were unhappy about their position within the family, um, you know, that Megan particularly was having trouble adjusting. A year ago, then, they made what at the time was like a bombshell announcement that they wished to step back from being like I don't know, like main royal people. Um, there's there's specific like names for the tiers of this, but I have flushed this information from my brain. Sorry. Um, they wanted to step back though and and have a little bit more of a private life, um, be a little bit less front and center. And at the time, this was sort of framed as, you know, the press is being so intrusive and so unfair, and you know, and we feel unsafe, um, which is important because it kind of heralded the the rebrand to come this was a year ago um can i just i'm gonna just interject something here because this really the feel feel unsafe aspect is reminding me very much of like and i think there's echo there are echoes of this throughout but like the smith college debacle and this question of like social justice issues sort of sorting themselves out in terms of the like sensitivities of very posh people Rather yes. than in other arenas where it's not just that it's not just about race versus class or something, but where like it's only as if you can ad- address race in the context of some incredibly posh situation. And yeah, anyway, I think I mean I think it's we that. will and return also, to this. Yeah, but, I mean, there's also like the the whole sort of therapizing of language. Well, Oprah, I mean, of, yeah, I mean, I mean, I don't know. Um, Chris, uh, what's her name? Elizabeth Lash Quinn, you know, talks about this in her book. Um, what is it? God, I'm going to I'm going to screw this up. Is it Racecraft or something else? But um, about this move towards sort of therapeutic language that spends a lot of time circling and talking about and unpacking and being emotional about all of these issues without ever solving them in any kind of practical way. But now we're really in the weeds and I want to try to finish. Um, right. Finish so they did, they did the exit. Right. So they, yeah, Megxit. So, you know, they were sort of, they wanted to be sort of half in, half out. And the queen apparently was like, that's not going to work. It hasn't historically worked. And so they were going to take a year. Um, at the time that they announced this, they started this Instagram account and all of this branding surrounding the name Sussex Royal. And it was like, they were going to put it on bed sheets and I don't know, notebooks and pencils and stuff. Um, but they then learned that they would not be allowed to brand themselves in this way because calling yourself royal comes with certain responsibilities if you are a member of the royal family in England. So if Right, you, right. So that already set up the stakes being that they wanted to profit if you want to use from the it, name, you gotta play right. the game. Well, they, they wanted want to, to they wanted to <laughs> profit from it but not take part in it, which for for some mix of understandable and annoying reasons right so fast forward a year um there was supposed to be this sort of like you know 12 month grace period for everyone to figure out what was going to happen they were going to sort of review what what they were going to do and what their position was going to be um and at some point things seemingly fell apart they ended up first in canada and then just as Canada started like brutally locking down for the coronavirus. They fled again to California. Exactly, exactly um, what I would have done if I were infinitely rich and famous. I yeah, too would have gone to Santa Barbara. That sounds nice. Yeah, it does. It does sound it's, nice. I've been there. It's it's really like heaven. Yeah. Oh, it looked it looks like heaven in this interview. So yeah, you know, like they're basically done with the royal family and this 
interview with Oprah is sort of a, a giant fuck you to everybody who they've left behind. I mean, it it feels very bridge burning, even as they talk sort of respectfully about how they still have such a wonderful relationship with Her Majesty the Queen. And um, I guess, you know, Harry was briefly sort of estranged from parts of his family, but they're now mending fences. He says that time heals all wounds and so on and so forth. But basically, they sat down and they did this, this tell all with Oprah where they basic they revealed just enough to make the palace look terrible and they did it in such a way apparently that it's it's basically they won this war it's impossible for the monarchy because of the constraints that they have to live under when it comes to how they talk to the press and when under what circumstances they can't really rebut any of this in the way that they might like to they have to be very restrained so megan um sat down first with Oprah for about an hour and then was joined by Harry and she dropped a a series of, you know, quote unquote bombshell revelations. Nothing in this interview really surprised me, you know, just having kind of familiarized myself with what had been going on with them previously. But she described feeling very, very lonely. Um, The most serious thing that she talked about was that she had been so lonely and so isolated and began really struggling with her mental health to the point where she was suicidal and the palace would not support her or allow her to check into like a hospital to, you know, to be monitored because it would look bad. Um, She also revealed that there was questions about whether um, their child Archie would be titled in the way that they wanted him to and what that would mean for his security detail. Lots and lots of conversation about how they didn't feel protected. Um, They didn't feel safe. She says protected a lot in this interview. And um, the, the thing that everybody is talking about that I have some questions about that will never be answered, but um, is that apparently and this was a a secondhand report because this conversation is one that she was not present for. But apparently at some point before Archie was born, uh, a family member within the palace said something to Harry about wondering how dark the baby would be as he is the product of a mixed race marriage. And the general interpretation, at least on like the American internet, seems to be that this was a deeply racist concern. It stemmed from like a deeply contemptuous and racist place. So I I was listening to BBC Woman's Hour this morning. um, As one does. As one does. And (laughs) it seems like that is also at least in part the interpretation in Britain. I'm not going to say of every single British person, but that is not unique to the States, that interpretation. I too, however, have questions about this because it seems like the kind of thing that plays either online or even just on TV, whatever, you know, as very, like, it sounds so terrible. It also, depending what actually was said, could be anything from, like, to me, it seems like there's a spectrum, right? There's on the one hand, somebody in the royal family, and I am entirely prepared to believe the royal family may be incredibly racist. That seems quite plausible. Um, It's possible that somebody in the royal family said, um, like, you are out of the family if this baby comes out looking black, right? That's one version, one extreme. The other extreme, no, but the other extreme would be, like, 
I wonder what the baby will look like. The baby has two parents. Yes. Is he going to take after you or him? I even want to go so far as to say that in cases where the parents are of different backgrounds, it is not unusual. And I, I say this with my piles of anecdotal evidence of this, for there to be a discussion of like either what will a child look like or what does the child look like in terms of the backgrounds the child has or even indeed like oh look isn't it interesting that this child whose parents are two different things looks like almost like a third ethnicity because that's just how things are I mean I think that these are things that are discussed in a way that's not that's on like there's this realm of this sort of conversation I was entirely normal that's not what I would say is that it's not racist it also the moment <laughs> but it could be very very easily framed as such depending you know so it seems to me like it's just not known where on the spectrum of like this like i guess the implication was that something about somebody saying that archie had better not be dark-skinned and i don't know was that what so, harry claims or am no. i just is this just something that people on the internet so, have so here's, here's how this was for, yeah so here's here's what they did they basically they presented this in a way that did not neither confirmed nor denied the context that we're trying to kind of suss out here but in a way that very much allowed maybe even encouraged people to think the worst because it was sort of I mean, you had to, you had to be there. Um, (laughs) But like in the context of watching this, this moment where she talks about the baby's, you know, this conversation about the baby's um, skin tone, which again, she was not present for. She heard about it secondhand. Somebody said this to Harry. She wasn't there. Um, This was teased in multiple moments ahead of it actually happening in the context of the interview. It's like, you know, when we return and you see her say there was a lot of this is her, Megan, saying, you know, there was a lot of concern about, you know, how dark he was going to be. And then you see Oprah going, what? And they they played this at least twice, um, you know, to kind of like amp up the the audience so it felt to me you know watching this and i have absolutely no dog in this fight i think all of these people kind of suck um thank you so do i okay (laughs) i'm glad we established that but i felt that's an allowed position (laughs) yes yeah Yeah. please don't cancel me royal family fans um but yeah it felt manipulative i i felt like a you know a very specific reaction was being teed up and that that mm-hmm. was the reaction they got oh, um I, it also was you know so megan talks about this and she talks about it and there's this whole like you know oprah's sort of framing it as you know well of course it's in terms of race you know we talk there's a lot and a lot of talk about race when harry finally joins the conversation oprah asks him about this and he says I will never talk about this conversation. Of course, you know, in saying that he'll never talk about it, all he does is cement this idea that it was really bad. It's just as bad as you imagined it. So I'm trying to figure out, um, so that does seem like an unknown, but what I'm trying to figure out is like, what is the point of all of this? Like, why is this story of interest culturally now? And I feel like there are a couple theories that I have floating around. One is um, that, it's like sort of expunging, is that the right word? Like the guilt of like America has been so 
preoccupied with its own racism, its own racist history and racist present since the summer. And I mean, also since before the summer, but especially since the summer. And I, there's something about this story where the the moral is that if you want to escape racism, you leave <laughs> Europe and come to the States, which makes America look good, you know, mm-hmm. and makes America feel good about itself. Whereas I'm going to say, I think there's racism all over the place. It's different in different places. I would say that anti-Black racism specifically is probably especially bad in the States and that, you know, like xenophobia tends to be maybe more of an issue in Europe and just to generalize, you know, tremendously. Um, Yeah, but basically it doesn't seem like there's a general rule according to which if you are Black, you are better off in the States than in England. But I think that might be part of why it catches on and why people are so drawn to the story in America is this idea of like, it makes the States look like this kind of beautiful place where you sit at a safe distance because of COVID from Oprah in beautiful sunny California. And finally you can breathe. Finally you can speak. You can speak your mind. You can talk about your feelings. You can talk about you can talk about your mental health. You can't have uh, socialized medicine to address it. Um, but yeah, anyway. Um, oh, well, that kind of, I mean, that ties into what my um, theory is about this, which, you know, it's it's sort of it's sort of in sync with yours or maybe like a, like a branch of the same tree. Um, and this is what I wrote about for Unheard, which is that um, there's something very satisfyingly American about the narrative that has been constructed. Oh, I love what you wrote about the the princess narratives like in movies and stuff because that that I had not thought about it like that and that's um it's very true. Yeah, so I mean what's really what's really wild and I mean this I think that the the way this interview played out really speaks to the power of narrative, you know, even even in a real life circumstance, if you can kind of sell this story that resonates with people, then you basically you win. Um, so when I was assigned this piece, I had to turn it around really fast because it was basically like um, I had to submit it in the middle of the night, my time in order for it to be ready for England in the morning. Um, so what I did in advance was kind of prep a shell post, um, you know, like writing around the the direction that I thought the interview was likely to go. And one of the things that I wrote about was, or that I wrote was this intro, you know, kind of talking about the way that the Meghan and Harry romance already slotted into this genre of movie. And it's like, it's the prince in me, it's the princess switch, it's a Christmas prince. Um, It's to a certain extent, princess diaries, although it doesn't have the romance angle in it, but of the American Cinderella who, you know, finds herself suddenly royal affiliated even though like she's not prepared she's not qualified and she's uninterested she's like disdainful of the whole thing you know and she's like she doesn't know how to curtsy and she doesn't know what fork to use and she doesn't want to learn any of these things because she's an independent american progressive feminist woman it's like a twist on holly go lightly kind of yeah, you know, I mean, all of these, all of these archetypes kind of, you know, circle each other out there in the ether. And um, 
the the way that this always plays out is you know in the movies is the 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 american cinderella um teaches her stodgy royal in-laws that it's okay to embrace change and like be down with the common people but she also develops an appreciation for the importance of tradition and service and duty and all of these you know all these various things that you know that make the monarchy sustainable so like Megan already fit very much, you know, just like from a kind of a cursory glance, she fit this narrative very well. But then when she sat down with Oprah, she's literally like, I, I didn't know how to curtsy. Like I had no idea how any of it worked. Like she's literally just selling herself as that character, as that archetype. Um, you know, I, I didn't even have to rewrite my intro because she mentioned the curtsying thing herself. I was like, thank you. Um, so I think, you know, that there's there's this element of like she was living the fairy tale, but she gave it an even more satisfying, even more American ending. Like, it, you know, instead of living happily ever after in the palace, in the traditions, she stole the damn prince and brought him back to the United States. And now they live in California, you know, yeah. and and they're like, and they've rebranded and they're, you know, they're, they have a Spotify deal and a Netflix deal and they're going to live happily ever after okay, on a it's just, pile of money. It's just something bizarre about this to me and how they're received. Because I feel like there's something about it where they're kind of like culturally received as almost like interchangeable with the Obamas, like sort of yeah. progressive heroes. But the thing is like, you know, that's a little bit more self-made. Even Michelle Obama, who, yes, happened to marry somebody who turned out to become president um they're just a little there's like a little more there like i don't know i feel like there's something about treating i I just don't like how prince harry who was just born into being a prince you know is somehow like roped into this and is now like rounded up to like this sort of noble in the new sense right noble in the old and new sense of things person and it just that's a good point oh i just find this very gross like i find okay i did not watch the interview but like i tend to find megan like likable enough like she seems whatever I'm, i'm sure she's been through quite a lot even though you know she's also not had a single material concern during all of this time which is hard not to think about if you are you know like not like that in the world but anyway yeah i mean but Ah, I don't know, it's this thing about how, like, you're supposed to love Harry now. It's like, no, this is somebody who was born into tremendous unearned advantage and somehow imagines that he can be, like, not benefiting from it, but actually benefiting from it. And, oh, God, and isn't there cause environmentalism, which is like, okay, then why don't they consider living in like a little apartment somewhere and not traveling like i don't know i'm yeah. sorry this is just they should uh, be in a mud hut <laughs> but not a mud hut but like it doesn't they don't have to live in like a mansion you know they don't have to go anywhere they could just like oh i'm sorry i just have a thing about this but yeah i don't know i find so but i also suspect that the royals are probably incredibly like i mean their whole thing the whole thing is you know unearned advantage like this is not it's not to like call them out as privileged. They literally like, this is literally like what the French revolution was about getting rid of privileges in that sense. You know what I mean? Like Mm -hmm. that's the whole point. And then I guess I just find something very distasteful about the wanting it both ways, which 
I don't know. And I also just like wonder what would it mean like if the royal family, you know, conquered its racism, would it be like a fair, like it could be, that would be a good PR move. It should do that, you know, but like, I don't know. It just seems like the whole point is like the whole thing is like you are who you're born you know or who you marry or who you marry you know and it's different from race because it's much more narrow well it's like breeding but you know a good question is like are we sure they didn't if everyone was you know they they sort of made a lot of noise about how like even Meghan and Harry made a lot of noise about how they were very, very warmly welcomed. She was very, very warmly welcomed. Um, you know, where there was some questionable stuff, you know, apart from this reported conversation, which I don't know, I just, I, I'm uncomfortable putting really any stock in it just because it's, it seems so open to, you know, any number of interpretations. But, you know, the the place that they really experienced, um, you know, racist push, pushback was, in the press when right. I guess the, you know, the British tabloids are notoriously terrible. And then I guess you know, there was also an incident where an extended family member wore an insensitive brooch. Right. Um, I remember you know, that from the time, mm-hmm. um, which I don't I just, remember what it was, but I remember that it was insensitive. Yeah. I just don't even know. I don't even know enough about that to like, I think it, the, I vaguely remember the thing was bad, but I don't remember what it was. Um, I'm also going to just take this opportunity to remind everybody that Prince Harry wore a Nazi costume to a, a party, and that's apparently just completely fine. But no, let's um, just underline that again. But here's what I think <laughs> is amazing about Harry and about Meghan, but, but especially about Harry, is that in approaching this Megxit the way they did, they've managed to convince everybody who they needed to convince of this that they were victims, that that they were, you know, mm-hmm. that they were victimized, that they were put upon, that they experienced tremendous unfairness. There's a point in the interview where Harry um, says, you know, that his family cut him off financially. And if it weren't for the money that he had inherited from, <laughs> from his deceased mother, that, you know, he never would have been able to move the family to California and it's Aww. like you are you are a 36 year old man who is a prince I just I mean I'm sorry like this shed is, a I single tear this, this is the thing I mean I guess I'm a little torn on this right like the sort of question of entitlement right because like on the one hand you do need more security if you are you know internationally famous and understood to be royal whether or not the technicalities line up with that so I kind of get that. But I also think this whole thing about like, if you are like, whether or not one's son gets to be a prince. I mean, it's interesting, right? Like, on the one hand, yeah, you know, like these extreme case examples. So I'm thinking, I think it was Oprah, right? Who once was like racially profiled while shopping for some kind of incredibly expensive handbag. Am I hallucinating this? This I is like no years idea. ago. This is from years ago. So I'm gonna have to um, Google it. But I think there is something about these cases where like, yes, the the fact that racism persists, you know, even for people who have otherwise everything going for them, it's the same as like the sort of lean in feminism or whatever, you know, like any of these things where, yes, it is noteworthy that you can have everything, you know, going in your favor. But if you have this one, you know, trait, things can still, you can still be discriminated against. I think that's Mm -hmm. a valuable insight and a sort of class only approach to the world doesn't get you there. 
I also think there's just something about the whole thing that's just like on a common sense level, completely ridiculous. Everybody is fine. If they're not fine, it's just because people, because families are, you know, neurotic because mental health issues and health health issues, unfortunately, they do just happen anywhere. You know, this isn't just, you know, something that money can just make not happen. Money can, you know, help address them. But yeah, obviously, you know, tragedies happen in all families. Goodness knows Princess Diana dying so young with the two young children. Obviously, that's very tragic. You know what I mean? It's not like, um, it's not like it would have been less upsetting because these were rich people. I mean, I think that's all true. I guess I just think at the same time, terrible things happen to people who are not also royal and to with, with this specifically the family fallout part not the princess diana part because i think like you know i'm sure that was just legitimately tragic doesn't matter who any of these people were but like uh i don't know people have family fallouts and if you have your mother's money and your mother was princess diana well i don't know i don't know i just i'm, I'm having trouble caring beyond thinking like okay, they had a big fall. I guess I do wonder though, like, I mean, going with Oprah specifically just seems like such a power move. Oh yeah, I mean, she's and the closest thing America has to a queen. That, I think that's absolutely right. I agree <laughs> with you about that, yes. Um, but yeah, I think that that really is this way to kind of like, like I would predict that the royal family caves basically and is like, oh, we see, you know, like I think they might almost have to because they might feel they have to. I don't know. I'm not sure that they can. I'm not sure they can can do anything. Um, and well, maybe not you know, publicly, but I don't know. I feel like there's going to be a sort of like it could be that they do behind the scenes, and then all is made up, all is forgiven. I don't know. Right. I mean, according to them, you know, they still have an, an excellent relationship with some of the family, particularly with you know the with the queen, who's the matriarch, who and know, that's is, supposed to continue after going on Oprah. To... I guess so it's i don't know it's 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 clearly complicated and apparently after this aired harry decided that he wanted to make clear that the person who said the thing about the baby's skin was not his grandmother and not his grandfather who is i guess like lying in hospital potentially in very bad shape and you know there was all of this talk about oh the insensitivity of allowing this interview to air when you know prince philip is possibly on his deathbed but yeah you know i don't know i i wish i wish i could make myself care more <laughs> about what is gonna happen for them i i you know i wish them well i guess well i think there's also like the the racism aspect seems tricky because there's so many things with her that you know make her not the sort of what was imagined as like first of all i mean who was harry dating very publicly before this a bunch of like younger blonde British socialite girls, mm -hmm. you know? So I think I, it did was... not, I didn't know that. I'm okay. glad you know that. Well, I must've been following this at one point because I remember these, there was one of them was Cressida. What? Royalist and Cressida. What? I don't get this. Oh, it's a Shakespeare, it's a Shakespeare play. I am an idiot. <laughs> I am, I, I am an idiot twice out. over. <laughs> no, no, it's fine. I don't mind. I can be an idiot twice over both that I know who Harry was dating like 15 years ago. And um, I don't know anything else. <laughs> <That's fine. laughs> 
Uh, yeah, he dated these sort of British socialite girls. And I think like for him to be dating a woman who was older, divorced, American and multiracial or biracial, whatever, you know, that's yeah, like that's a lot of things. It does, as I understand it, seem like the press was also just racist. Mm-hmm. Um, so this actually returns to the point that you were making about, you know, how is race, you know, or how's the approach to racial issues better versus worse in the U.S. And I think that that, you know, the thing that was impactful in this case when it came to the royal family was here you've got this institution that is i mean like let's just admit it extremely inbred as a result of their obsession with bloodlines and so on and so forth so getting new blood in there is a good idea but there's still going to be a lot of concerns about you know from the less enlightened members of the family are going to be concerned about miscegenation or you know like polluting the gene pool or whatever in a way that i think is you know, just in the States at large, not so much a thing anymore. I, you know, as if you want to compare America in general to the monarchy when it comes to how they deal with the idea of racial intermarriage, I think America's probably better. Well, but I, but so much, but like the monarchy is just this one thing, you know what I mean? I think it's almost like, I guess the argument that's made in favor of monarchy is kind of like, it allows the sort of ridiculous urge to care about these sort of stupid things to be channeled into this one frivolous thing you know it's like symbolically important but not like actually they're not the people who are like actually governing sure but if you're but if you're in the family i think that that probably right. doesn't you that's know, true matter not that they you. are that's because <laughs> they are real people i mean yeah i don't know i don't know like would it have gone differently if one of the trump children had married somebody who was not white i actually don't know if anybody would have cared because like i'm thinking so ivanka married a jewish man and converted to judaism and i don't really get the sense that anybody cared in any way and i also but i also don't get the sense conversely that it made sort of overt anti-semites among trump's supporters i don't think they cared either (laughs) like as best as i can tell it seems like they just didn't really think about it yeah yeah i you know that I have absolutely nothing to say about that. It's just kind of a confounding situation. Um, but the last thing that I want to say about the the play that was made here, um, because I, I find it fascinating, is that, I mean, Harry, you know, is, I guess he's like distantly in line for the throne if something very bad happened to a lot of his family members. Mm-hmm. You know, there there's some conceivable way in which he might end up there. And if I'm wrong about this, I'm sure somebody will pop up to let me know. No, that's true. He's not near, he's not close at all at this point, not with right. William having had all the children. Yeah. And so I, it seems as though, you know, he and Megan kind of hedged their bets that it was better to align themselves with influence, influencer power than it was to try to, you know, align themselves with the old school power of the monarchy. You know, that this was their best way forward. And this was going to be, I guess, you know, not just, not just remunerative, but enriching, you know, to do, to, to go all in on, 
influencer culture where you do this kind of faux vulnerability. Oh, I'm going to be so real with you. Like, we're going to talk about things. I'm going to be vulnerable. I'm going to tell you things that I've never told anyone, you know, and by you, I mean an audience of billions on national television. Um, and I think that's very interesting. I think that, that there's something interesting happening there in terms of where we see the sort of nexus of influence shifting. Mm-hmm. No, that makes sense. And that, yeah, because I mean, they have not really a whole lot to lose. And this way they get to sort of have their big names profit from their big names. And also live somewhere very sunny and yeah, live happily ever after underneath yeah. a vine-covered pergola in somebody's santa barbara backyard i think it sounds like the right way to go for them i also do not lose tremendous amounts of sleep over any of the people on either side of this thing yeah agreed um so should we move on so I think we're going to go from the topic of princesses to the topic of straight women, an overlapping population. Yes, um, it is keeping in mind International Women's Day, mm-hmm. um, you know, so we, we're talking about lady things. So we're going to talk about men. Yeah, well, we're gonna, we <laughs> I'd like to read a tweet that appeared um, in my timeline, not favorably shared, I should say, um, but the responses to it are a bit more, well, we'll talk about that. But anyway, this tweet by somebody named Deborah Cleaver, um, it goes, who has about almost 3000 followers, not a super famous person, but somebody sort of politically engaged on Twitter, whatever. Anyway, um, here's the tweet. Today on International Women's Day, I would love to hear from straight women, how their lives are improved by dating slash marrying straight men. As a lesbian, it seems to me that straight men make your lives harder, but I'm eager to be educated, exclamation mark. (laughs) Now, you would think that people would have laughed this off the face of social media. Instead, instead, you get a lot of replies from women who are talking about how great their husbands are. Um... Not just that their husbands are great, but they they married the one good one. The one good one, right. As though they would not have the sexual orientation they have had they not met this particular man, as though their sexual orientation did not exist prior to meeting that man. And as though had they not met that man, they would either be happily celibate for life or partnered with a woman. I want to say something extraordinarily obnoxious um, and I... Is this is this a safe place for me to do that? Yeah, the, there are no royals here. You can go <laughs> okay. ahead. Um, this tweet seems to me, and you know, and I do want to talk about like the substance of it, but I also want to talk about the genre of it. Okay, um, because it is so a type of tweet. It is also you know, a book. It is literally also a book. Go on, go on. Okay, I would love to hear, you know, it seems to me that this, but I'm eager to be educated. I'm sorry, no, you are not. Like you are, you are putting this out there so people can tell you about how you're absolutely correct that men are trash. And like the the whole, this the whole genre of like, it's so, it's so often phrased as 
genuinely curious and then right. somebody will say something where they're not genuinely curious at all like so they are- it is a horrible i agree with you that this is a horrible twitter genre but in this particular case it just so happens that i know that a new academic book is literally that tweet but a book and that was what sort of drew me to this because i just wrote about this book um in an article for the hedgehog review um and the so my article is called straightness studies it's mostly behind a paywall it will at some point not be paywalled at which point i will announce that fact on yeah everybody should read this article when it's available because it's very good just Um, like everything that phoebe writes well i i try i try but anyway um but this book though that i wrote about is called um it's by jane ward who's a gender studies professor um and it's called the tragedy of heterosexuality um and the book is dedicated here's how the dedication goes it's for straight women may you find a way to have your sexual needs met without suffering so much so it presents itself like so jane ward presents this book as about helping straight people who are miserable and about just it's about how miserable straight people surely are and she uses the fact that there are like tacky bachelor and bachelorette party you know, gag gifts or whatever that reference like how terrible it is to be married. And therefore straight people are obviously very upset all the time. And unlike uh, LGBT people who are just constantly living their best lives and it's great. Um, But what's interesting about it is for a book that's supposedly curious, like it's the reason I bring this up in the context of that tweet is it's completely like, the book is presenting itself as this is to help straight people, specifically straight women. And this is to understand straight people. And the substance of the book, a lot of the book is just this series of quotes from interviews that Ward has done with um, LGBT friends and acquaintances who have basically, and just, she just, quotes it back all the ways they think that straight people are boring ridiculous oh so in, an attempt, on on. in an attempt to understand straight women she interviewed no straight women well th- so then she reaches the very end of the book and um finds okay yes so i'm looking at um, what i wrote to remember what's in this book and basically yeah, in the last chapter she asks a straight woman about her straightness and learns uh, I've written that she learns, um, quote, I am in it for the dick. So basically that is like the only (laughs) sort of, there's really no, um, there's, the whole book argues around the likeliest reason why women are straight, which is sexual orientation, you know, and it's not really, um, and, and what's really ridiculous is that she, describes her own past as that she was with men and then sort of thought better of it and now is not with men anymore now Hmm. does that mean that all women who are with men have a similarly flexible sexuality or perhaps that she baseline had the potential to be attracted to different people and that's fine you know like it just seemed like she she infers from this that every time a woman tells you she's straight what she's really saying is that she just doesn't have the get up and go to um be more creative and then that gets to the other issue with the book which is that it completely completely like in a sort of parody level way conflates being kind of upscale slash alternative 
with being queer and then like so straightness becomes this kind of like trashy lowbrow thing it's like this very weird class argument too but it's completely about being basic it's completely about being basic it's about um like it's about how much more interesting she is than other people how much more interesting anybody who isn't straight is than anybody who is straight and in this kind of um like it's completely like it's about taste um and it's about basicness it's completely that right um and yeah but i mean what what interests me though specifically like as it pertains to that tweet is just this idea that like it combines that sort of horrible like please educate me genre with like but like it's like literal education this is a scholar right this is somebody who's a professor researcher um clearly a smart person but somehow <laughs> has written an entire book about heterosexuality that displays zero curiosity about straight people and also zero kindness to straight people who are supposedly, I'm not saying that anybody owes straight women some sort of pity book, but if you're claiming that your book is about, you know, is dedicated to straight women who you want to help. And then you literally like write a whole book, basically like as if it's this mystery, you know, much like that tweeter, puts you know like this mystery why a woman would be with a man it's just amazing to me that this um gets taken so seriously and i think it's really important like i'm glad that i happen to have read and written about this book because otherwise this would be very easily dismissed as well somebody saying everything on twitter you know it's twitter which is yes people are saying all kinds of stupid things on twitter but this tweet there is a book version of it by a different person and this is a not uncommon view you know it's not i'm not going to say that like most of humanity holds this view obviously but um but yeah i think i think it's very interesting well for a lot of reasons um but it does seem like there's this reluctance both on the part of the sort of like just asking questions person but also on a lot in the replies like there seems to be this real reluctance to admit openly that women desire and specifically that women desire most frequently men and there just seems to be this like wall (laughs) against saying that and i wonder if it's partly that there is still such a taboo on not just i'm not talking like polyamory or something but i'm saying like this idea that a woman cannot admit to like ever in her life having noticed a man she's not partnered with like whether that would be seen as somehow cheating and some kind of like like if you thought Keanu Reeves was good looking in a movie then then your poor husband like oh this is a good point for us to talk about my favorite part of your essay um I pulled it out because I I wanted to I wanted to, to discuss it a little bit um you write our sexuality is thought to be a PG version of straight or gay men's, neither filthy nor compulsive, nor visually oriented. A straight woman would never be seen being sexually inappropriate on a Zoom call, a la New Yorker journalist Jeffrey Tubin. So I read this and all I could think was, um, no, you know, if she had any impulses like that, she'd never admit it because the social cost is much too great. And that is not just you know, um, a a case of men 
being horrified to imagine or learn that women are just as horny as they are for the same reasons and in the same ways from this like kind of patriarchal or oppressive standpoint, but also in, you know, like feminist spaces and progressive spaces, it's seen as very distasteful um, to to acknowledge that there is any kind of desire, you know, that that um, women's default is sexually is anything but like, mm-hmm. no, thank you. I'd prefer not to. Because it puts you on the wrong side of, well, it's two things. On the one hand, it puts you, well, it, it, yes. So, oh, it's like, it's more than two things. So one is the basic thing, right? Because to say you like men gets interpreted as saying that you are boring, which is not, it doesn't go that way for men who say they like women, because it isn't assumed that a man who likes women, just all he wants out of life is a girlfriend or wife. And that's it. It's still assumed he has his adventures. He wants to go on his ambitions, all of that women that's just like an urge of course why wouldn't you know most men have that urge whatever so that's part of it is the basicness thing then there's the sort of me too angle where you know being sordid and disgusting (laughs) is like something that is toxic masculinity and then you get the men who write the kind of like self-loathing oh i have all this testosterone it makes me disgusting sorts of things as if women you know, with different hormone levels, simply it just isn't, you know, possible for women to experience universal human (laughs) experiences, right? So there's that. But then I think there is also the older thing. And I don't just mean like the sort of Victorian aspect of things, but also just it's, it doesn't make a woman seem attractive if she admits that she desires because she's supposed to be the desired party that's the cultural thing, I think. And I think that is also entering into it that like, if you admit as a woman to, you know, unrequited interest or interest that you don't yet know is requited, like, that's just, I think there is still some sort of shame in that. Not that, I'm not saying no woman ever asks out a man or anything like that, that that's actually how it plays out. Although if you look at marriage proposals, it's pretty rarely a woman proposing to a man but I do think that that enters into it and also enters into just like um the way these things I guess I don't even know how to put this but just that there is some sort of shame in admitting well also oh I know what I was going to say that there's also a lot of sort of social science research um saying that like women are just like inherently reactive in desire and basically only desire when desired and that like female desire is the desire to be sort of thought beautiful as if that's like first of all as if that's something men don't experience um but also it just seems like there's so much social pressure on women to be beautiful in general like not just specifically like for a partner but just you know to get ahead at work whatever um and I think this all I think there's just a lot of things kind of in play at once such that it isn't that straight women are like coded as this group of people who it's not the women who like men it's the women who um for a variety of reasons you know have not gotten it together to be more interesting than that well gosh that notion that women don't want but that they just want to be wanted it's an incredibly narcissistic view of sexuality 
also strikes me that it's very similar to the way that men on like the incel forums <laughs> talk about women's sexuality um, as this sort of, you know, competitive, hypergamous, status-seeking thing. You know, it, it just it doesn't ring true to me at all. In like, so I read about this experience, like Cat Person has a whole scene where the um, protagonist is, you know, like imagining how hot the man she's with must find her how like young and hot and all of this and like it's just it's not something that I understand like on a just fundamental level like I just don't you know it's not how I, I don't get it basically and I, I don't I'm not saying it doesn't exist in the world but to say that that is just what it means like I guess it just lands in the same I mean what what's sort of weird about it being progressive is it's this argument that sexual orientation is for women a choice which just seems so regressive and so bad. Um, and it's just, it it's both potentially homophobic when it's certainly applied to women who are not straight, but it's also like, it's this idea that women just don't really have any kind of fixed desire and thus could be persuaded to get with anybody, which is itself bad from a Me Too type perspective. Because, you know, if women don't sort of divide the world as men are understood to between like would or wouldn't, you know, then anybody could be persuaded sort of to do anything. And that sort of supports the whole pickup artistry thing. And it just also doesn't seem to be true of how the world actually works. Women obviously do draw these lines. Um, yeah. And, and the whole thing with fluidity could just be that there's a more rigid homophobia facing men and that men are less allowed to be you know a little fluid than women are but that doesn't mean that women are every single woman could just be with anybody and just if only she had the political will to be a you know lesbian by choice that could happen like ah I don't know it just seems like the thing that's been landed upon is supposedly feminist um is ignoring female desire as it manifests itself nearly all of the time and I just ah oh, it it drives me nuts well I concur um have we reached the limit of this topic or is there more to say about it from your end no I think I have I have educated the lady on Twitter and our listeners hopefully on all of this um I don't know it's just a bad spot for humanity to have arrived at, but you know, maybe as all moments do, it will pass. It will just as this episode of our podcast is now about to be passed. Um, just to remind you, if you are listening to this on our public feed, we also have a Patreon, patreon.com slash feminine chaos, where you can sign up for $5 a month. You'll get at least two patrons only episodes per month plus access to our whole back catalog of prior conversations so please consider supporting us uh we would love to have you join us there oh and if you already are subscribing we are eternally grateful we are so grateful and uh this has been feminine chaos it has thank you for joining us bye bye